0: This is The Five of My Life, with me, Nigel Marsh. The series where I talk to notable people about five of their favourite things. The way it works is my guests always choose a favourite film, book, song, place and possession. They tell me their choices in advance so I can research them, but they don't tell me why they've chosen them. That's the subject of our conversation. The reason I devised this series is I wanted to create a slightly different way to gain a genuine insight into the real lives... ...and thoughts of prominent people. Charles Firth, amongst other things, is a father, husband and comedian. I first came across Charles when, along with millions of other Australians... ...I fell in love with The Chaser... ...the comedy team Charles created in 1998 with his university mates... Charles is impressively prolific. His many roles include that of author, director, producer, radio host, and TV presenter. Charles, how do you fit it all in? Um, sequentially. Yeah. <laughs> so so you, you are a serial <laughs> morganist. You, you, uh, um, you don't do it all, all at the same time.
1: Yeah, well, actually, it, that, until about uh, 2007 or 2008, yes, I was a serial one idea at a time okay. kind of guy. And then I had one of the most tragic creative engagements I've ever had, um, which actually changed my attitude and probably actually made me a worse creative. I think it's been all downhill since then. So um, I was doing this project and my whole idea was you've got to put all your eggs in a basket, in, in just one basket when you're creative and just go full tilt at that project and just ignore everything else. And just so that it becomes the best thing in the world. And I did that with this project. It was for SBS TV called um, The Complete and Utter History of Australia. It was a beautiful 10-part satirical show, sketch comedy, that purported to sort of be the definitive account of Australia, you know, the last 60,000 years of Australian (laughs) history. Right. And went through. We got letters from SBS saying, you know, here's $2.3 million. We're going to fully fund this, you know, along with Screen Australia. And then the GFC happened and SBS's advertising just dried up overnight and they suddenly started getting cold feet about all projects and I was a casualty in that. Suddenly they went, oh, no, we can't do it and it just died and this project that I literally spent an entire year working on just disappeared. That was it. Uh, I feel your pain, mate. In in
0: 2001, I relocated around the world with four kids under the age of five to run a uh, set of companies in Australia for an American multinational. Uh, Got here. And they closed the firm, <laughs> <laughs> which I mean I, I mean I'm glad you laugh because I've got a sense of humour. You go, that's guys, that's brilliant. Okay, you know, I don't know anyone here. I've got no money. I've got no job. But, hey, but
1: did so, they did they pay for your relocation
0: uh, to Australia? Yeah, uh, and then and then they just uh, abandoned yeah. you. So, so that's fat forty you, and five. That's where sure, it came from.
1: You are sure it's not some sort of reality TV show type <laughs> setup? Like that's a perfect.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, so I love the old only joking about the two point three. You can take your show Firth and you can you yeah. Now, um, so, so coming to, to matters of today, yes, yes, without yes. telling us
1: what the choice is,
0: oh, yes. tell me what was the most difficult one for
1: you to choose out of the film, book, song, place and possession? I reckon possession. Definitely possession.
0: We're going to come to that last. Right. So we're going to start with your film, which is a 1997 Bill Murray film called The Man Who Knew Too Little. My favourite actress, Joanne Wally, who was star of Dance with a Stranger and A Kind of Loving? Yes, is in that film. Yes, and I'd never heard of the film. So, right, so I love you for getting me into that film because anything that she's in, I adore. Tell me why you um,
1: why you like it and why you chose it. Right, so I'm I'm interested that it's a 1997 film. I didn't know that, but it, the reason why I have such fond memories of it, and it's it is not my favourite film. It's it's. A it's, meaningful. It's a film. genuinely flawed film. Wait, wait, I think it's it got 41 a, on Rotten Tomatoes. Yeah, right. I thought,
0: who is this Charles <laughs> Firth? Yeah. From, like, he's got shit taste.
1: And who's giving it 41? Like, <laughs> like not even that. 21. I mean, it's it's high farce. It's it's a ridiculous premise. So it's a Bill Murray film about um, a guy who doesn't know anything but is mistaken for being a sort of James Bond-style spy. And the whole movie, the premise is maintained. So everyone interprets all the bumbling things that he's doing as this sort of, he's a genius. He must be, It's so calm and collected in this, you know, high-stakes game of international diplomacy. And, um, but the reason it's such a fond movie for me is because throughout, 1998, I was living with actually a lot of the guys who now, with The Chaser and a few other people, And in actual fact, that's where I wooed my now wife. Um, You know, back then it was VHS videos. We'd rent The Man Who Knew Too Little and just watch it. We'd get stoned and watch it over and over again because – I think if you don't have your full mental facilities working, it's a very funny film.
0: It, it, it's <laughs> a ninety nine out I'm <laughs> if you're stoned. Yeah, that's right,
1: exactly. <laughs> it's just it's so absurd. And I, I fell in love with the film and I used it as a tool, I think, to just make friends. Like I'd just invite them back to our house and yeah. we'd watch it and everyone would laugh. And I remember Like, that's the house. That room is the place where we used to have meetings. For about six months before we set up the Chaser, we'd sit in that living room where the TV was and have these meetings that went on for hours, brainstorming all the things that the Chaser could be. It was going to be a newspaper, but all these different things. And lots and lots of people, like all our university friends, um, like 30, 40 friends would turn up to these meetings and and it was such a joyous it was such a beautifully and and it was i knew that it was my last year at university so it it was what, what did, that time what did you, what did you study mate it was, uh, I was just arts and I did a double major in politics and economics. Yeah.
0: So, mate, um, these meetings that where people would come around to your sitting room with pizza and beer and dope, and <laughs> t- t- tell me about those.
1: Well, actually, I think the meetings themselves are actually quite sober um, because, and they'd go on for a while. And I think we were just, we were high on the ideas but, and the possibilities. But then, you know, people would stay around and that's when it'd be like, Take out the man who knew too little. And I think it became <laughs> uh, uh, a bit uh, notorious. That, right. Oh, Charles is going to play that movie again. Yeah. But, it, but Craig also loved it. Like Bad and South Park were just the staples of that year.
0: Ha- have you seen The Death of Stalin? No, not yet. Oh, 10 out of 10. I mean, it's, it's unbelievable. Mm. But in that, Stalin used to have his meetings, not equating you to Stalin, right? <laughs> right. And then he'd make him sit around and watch cowboy movies. Yeah, yeah. And and you couldn't say, look, I don't want to watch The Man Too Little again, Joseph, because he'd shoot you. So they'd have to sit there and watch cowboy movies. Hilarious. I
1: should have bought a gun.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So that film, the premise is taking something two ways. So Bill Murray thinks he's in a play and it's real world. Yes. So so it's, it's looking at life and you're taking it in two different ways. And your book by a Canadian philosopher, is a dictionary that is based on a similar premise. It's a bunch of words that we all know and define in a certain way, but our old John Ralston Saul has defined them in a different way. My favourite one from the dictionary is a Big Mac, the communion wafer of consumption. Yes. So, so so tell me, first of all, about the book, which is actually a dictionary, and then tell me why you've chosen it for five of my life.
1: Yeah, why have I chosen a dictionary? Yeah, you, you <laughs> show off. yeah. <laughs> But, well, it's actually not a dissimilar story to you, Nigel, which is John Ralston Saw was a corporate executive. He was ah, okay. in, in big oil for years. Right. I think he actually ended up becoming the Governor-General of Canada or something. Wow. Okay. Or maybe his wife became the Governor-General. Right. But, uh, but he had a sort of sea change where he went, wait a minute, I'm going to become a philosopher. And he did. He, he During the 1990s, he had a series of... Really great books, sort of Weberian take on capitalism. So it was, it was a sort of rationalist approach to sort of philosophizing um, capital, including the unconscious civilization, which was his sort of breakout hit. I think the reason why I became a writer was because what I love is when you can actually create more than one meaning. Yeah. Out of a, a single set of words. That when two things are happening and two interpretations are possible from the same text, then that's, that's the delight that excites people's brains, an audience's brain. Like, you can be clear, but, but things are left unsaid and the reader has to connect the dots.
0: So, so it's like at breakfast when you say, could you pass the butter? And what you actually mean is, you ruined my life. You're a millstone that's destroying all my dreams.
1: Yes, that thing. Yeah. Okay. Just like I was saying (laughs) to my wife this morning. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But the the other reason why I chose the doubter's companion is simply it was the text that I used to woo my wife.
0: How the hell did you woo your wife, who I would love to meet, uh, with a dictionary?
1: Well, I I was going out with somebody else um, while I was living in that you bastard. I know and. My wife was friends with Craig's now wife, Keisha. They were best friends. And she would come around and they'd sit on the balcony overlooking the city. It was a beautiful balcony. And chat about stuff. And I'd come and join them. And Amanda, uh, she was at another university. But she was studying sort of political philosophy. And she has the most extraordinary um, theoretical – like she just understands political theory better than anyone else I know. And we'd have these intense debates where we both thought we were right and we'd get quite angry at each other. And and, and then into that conversation, I I'd discovered this book and I thought it was hilarious and she thought it was, you know, and it has a lot of political theory in it. And she'd have a, an analysis on the thing and I'd read it out to her late into the night and she'd pick holes in it and we'd laugh at it. And eventually, after about... It took about six months of this sort of um, just meeting of minds. It was through conversation. It was so much conversation before we ever did anything and... Um, that book was just so central to, to that seduction. What, what, what
0: a lovely story. And, and on, on the subject of uh, romance and, and women, I loved researching your choices because I have been chanting in the car, for we are women, the <laughs> oh, yes. equal of men. And I, I mean, the ACTU and all that stuff, absolutely sensational. right? So tell me about uh, the song which is for We Are Women, The Equal of Men, which is the unions, the ACTU, the the Australian Council of Trade Unions, 50-year anniversary, we've achieved a lot, uh, sort of album.
1: First of all, the ACTU is probably the daggiest institution in Australia. And, And the idea that they would put out any album strikes me, first of all, as absurd. They put it out in 1979. And it literally is... That was the peak of their power. Like, literally, you can draw a graph. I did economics at uni. You can draw a graph of trade union decline. It basically starts... From the the album. Yeah, (laughs) by the moment the album was published. And um, I don't know how I came across the album. It was just on the shelf. So it's, it's only an LP, you know, and when I went to university... My parents moved out of home, not me. My mum, right? she got a job up in Newcastle like a couple of years before um, I started going to university. And so she'd commute up there on Mondays and I would, in late high school, I would just be on my own with my sister during the week and then she'd come home uh, on weekends. So she still had the house, but um, it was very part-time. But one of the things that she left behind was this huge rack of albums that she'd accumulated uh, both in her relationship with my dad and then um, later with um, my stepfather. And at some point I discovered this album and just thought it was the funniest thing ever to exist. The, for, you know Just the concept of a union releasing a full, well-produced album. But then the funniest track on it by far is this feminist anthem called We Are Women The Equal Of Men, Written by, I don't know whether you saw it on the credits, it's written by Bob Young right. and Arthur Sherman or something. And who, who by who, two men. Who, who, who are they? Um, well, I don't know. They're men. Are, are they <laughs> so uni, we, union officials, or right? yeah, yeah, like, yeah, they're like, they, they would have been <laughs> union officials who wrote fabulous. this sort of for We Are Women the Equal <laughs> But it's also, the the, the lyrics themselves are, are just ridiculous. So like, because it will match, boy in situ. Skydiving, like they're just so, it's doggerel. Anyway, uh, but but I think part of it was I think my politics came from my, my parents. Like, you know, we went to peace rallies every yeah. Sunday and, you know, every Palm Sunday. You, you know, my dad was heavily involved in the sort of NFIP, which is the Nuclear Free and Independent right. Pacific Movement, all the peace movements of the 1980s. And, and that's where all those albums came from. Like, there's it, just tons of left-wing. That's what I grew up listening to. It was just a very special. It well, just reminds me of my parents. I so I, I,
0: I'm thrilled that, that through you agreeing to come on, with which thank you, that, that I've got to know it, and I did a bit bit of research on it. And so, so you you and your family, rabid lefties, which, yes. is, which is fabulous, because my background is the reverse. I mean, I mean,
1: not well. You're I mean, you're, not, mil- not, you're military, aren't you? That's
0: right. So around my dinner table, uh, unions are the devil. And I remember to this day seeing a ACTU car sticker, which made me laugh out loud, but also had a profound effect because I, I, I've got my own views. I'm not saying I've, I've got my family views at all. I've got my own views on everything. Mm. But uh, So I'm driving around, and this is probably, I don't know, 2001, and it was ACTU um, from the people who brought you the weekend. <laughs> now, isn't that a sensation. You go it's funny but yes. also it's thought provoking. Yes. You go H- I've never heard that's just a car sticker a better uh justification for why you need unions. Yes. So so specifically they may be idiots you know around whopping or whatever and blah blah blah. blah. But no no if we pull it back a bit lads you go brought you the weekend. We yes. used to have 8 year olds down mines because they were smaller and they could fit through smaller holes. Yes. And you go Okay, I, I like bringing it back to the overarching concept. You go, yeah, it, untrammeled commercialism, you know, you'd be careful with that. Yeah. But your fourth choice, so I spent a lot of time researching you, oh, yeah. right, hilarious, is your place, which is 89 Botany Road, and I have investigated that.
1: Oh, did you go and see I, it?
0: I found a laundry, a church, a bike shop. I suspect it might be a knocking shop. So I can't for the life of me understand why you've chosen 89 Botany Road. This is The Five of My Life. More with Charles Firth after the break. We're talking with Charles Firth, who's about to tell us why he's chosen a, an obscure Redfern address uh, on Five of My Life uh, as his place.
1: Yeah, so, but this is a sad story. This is not a nice memory for me in so many ways which is um, one of those – you're right, there is a church there and there's a laundromat. It's right next to the laundromat is uh, this building, which is currently called the Brilliant Building. It's about to be knocked down to make way for the Metro. But um, so after I left The Chaser in about 2007 or 2008, I started um, working with a guy called Nick Richardson. We made a few documentaries together – like comedy documentaries and did a whole lot of advertising stuff and comedy and but by about 2011 2012 um, we were getting itchy feet and, and one of the things that I'd always wanted to do was do a daily satirical news right. show like do the daily show of Australia so we just started doing it, we just decided actually, Fr- from
0: 89 Botany Road? Or? No, 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 this
1: was from in the city, we had an office in the city and um, through a lot of just sort of you know, patching things together without any money, we managed to convince, like, the City Morning Herald and the ABC and the Comedy Channel each to put in a tiny amount of money. Right. That allowed us to do, I think we did, like, I don't know, 200 or 300 episodes that were like, <laughs> I know, wow. okay. we, that were like two minutes long or something like that. And so that they were, they were, took a year. That was 2012, right? And so we had this show which was so weird because it was like it didn't really exist. But it, during that period, we then found a whole lot of writers and performers who went, what's this crazy sort yeah, of yeah. YouTube show that's also just on the ABC and, sure. you know, coming to you? And then eventually we managed to convince the ABC, no, no, let's make it, you know, properly fund it. We'll do it every day and it'll be 10 minutes a day. Um... And and we'll basically be the news channel in the news show for eighty nine. Be what too. you wish for,
0: right? What happened? Yeah,
1: and then so what we did is we we built a studio we offside at eighty nine Botany Road. Okay, we'd got all the silencing. It was just amazing. We had it was the dream come true, <laughs> um, and we had an upstairs which also had an advertising agency to sort of pay the bill, sure. and then downstairs was this crazy broadcast studio where – and and because the internet is so bad in Australia, part of the thing was that it was close enough to the ABC that we'd put it on a thumbnail. It was due in at the ABC at 7 o'clock for a 7.30 broadcast, and we'd turn it around in a day, we'd put it on a thumbnail drive, yeah. and then somebody would get on a bicycle – and and it was terrible when it was raining because it was like well you still got to go uh, <laughs> and and ride the their bike to sure. to Altimo yeah, where yeah. it would be ingested.
0: It was so bizarre. But but, but, but to to tell so, uh, this is a great story and yeah. I, I I almost don't want you to
1: end it because because yeah. you
0: said it was sad. So yeah. so far it's great. So, then well, then
1: well, fast forward eighteen months into that project, it was all going well, you know, and then I discover that uh, one of my business partners was just. A crook who was uh, you're right. taking money and he stole an enormous amount of money from that set of companies.
0: So yeah. damn, and, and, and you were friendly and, with this bloke, you trusted
1: him. What, what, I, what? I'd been working with him for seven years. It was oh. it was just. And he, he
0: was trousering it, or he was doing something else with it. What was he? He
1: was investing in, it, it. It's apparently incredibly common, which right. is you get these people who present themselves as business managers. I was creative; he'd be business. Mm. And um, he was just siphoning the money to invest in other crazy schemes right. that didn't go anywhere and along the way leaving the high life. Like he was just skimming, skimming, skimming. And it and it, and it actually made – it was also a sort of relief in a way because it, it meant that the past seven years of my working life made a whole lot more sense when it was like mm. – I've always wondered why I work at 100 miles an hour and I never seem to sort of – you know, accumulate yeah. huge clumps of money. Like, like everyone else seems to do that when, you know, you know when you're running a TV show uh, uh, and have your own studio you, and running an ad agency, you'd expect to sort mm. of... How,
0: how did you find out? And what did he say? And he said, oh, mate, so i it was ac-
1: It was actually another business partner of his mm. worked it out who had a far better business brain and, and started forensically going through the mm. spreadsheets. And he called me... The the weekend it went down. He called me on the Friday and went, Charles. I've been looking through the accounts. You have to come over and you have to start looking through mm. your accounts, and I'll show you the methods that he's using. Mm. And then, and by the Sunday, I got over there on the Sunday, um, and he and by you know he he thought he'd found like fifty grand missing. And then by the time um, I'd gotten over there for him, it was like three hundred grand missing. Uh. Um, yeah, uh, yeah. And so,
0: so, do you you confronted him in person? you say,
1: I could we, well, let's, it let's, was, let's, let's, it let's was call
0: him Dave. You said, Dave, it's come to my attention. You're ripping me blind. Mm. And he goes, Yep, sorry about that, Charles. Or, No, I'm not. Or, no, I'm not, or he runs away. Or It was and denial, 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 denial. Okay.
1: It was denial at first. And then it was, and then he got caught in his own lies, of course. And I, I think completely mistakenly and stupidly, um, took a very legalistic thing. Like, Mm. my doctor, um, like, I I immediately went to a doctor and went, I'm going to need some sleeping pills. (laughs) And he just happened to go, oh my God, this exact same thing happened to me once. Um, You've got to cut him out of your life. Mm. So I just immediately went extremely legalistic, which I think was a mistake because, you know, the person who benefited most from this fraud was my lawyer. Mm. Um, And I litigated. Like, um Did you win? We we won yeah. We won a couple of the judgments, um and then they kept on being reversed and everything like that and I ended up settling. But I ended up settling in a way that I mean, where everyone felt they'd lost, basically, mm. which is always how settlements what, what? happen. But enough to sort of get away and get on with my life. But it was one of those things where he wanted me to not be allowed to talk about it ever again. And I went, nah. Like um, that's not going to yeah. be in.
0: <laughs> what 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 a what a sort of a life lesson, an experience to go through. I, I, I hearing you say what your doctor said reminds me of a story that that's a different context, but I think relevant. Where uh, Sean Connery, yeah, so James Bond, blah blah blah, you, you know, loaded. He doesn't need any money. Um, he found out that one of his business managers had taken from one of his properties a fridge. Hmm. Now, Sean Connery doesn't need a fridge. Sean Connery can buy another fridge, right? But he did what your doctor said. You go, hold on, th- th- there's a trust thing going on here. Yes. If you'd said to me, I need a fridge, I'd say, well, I've got 100 in all my properties, why don't you just take one you like? Or I'd buy you one. But you stole it, you didn't tell me, and you're supposed to be my friend and my colleague. It's such a brutal bucket of reality cold water thrown in your face when you realise, hold on, you've been... You've been shagging me.
1: That's right. And what I now look back on is go. There were just like there was a culture of unaccountability in in all the companies that that we'd built together. It you was know, a set of companies, and that was clearly on his part by design. Um, but I had allowed it. I, I did allow a culture of unaccountability to build up because it was so much easier. You know, because yeah, like, you're creative, mate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll be creative. Oh, yeah. you're you're. Doing? You sure it's all right? Okay, but, but
0: happily, because uh, I know your fifth choice, mm. it didn't completely ruin you. Because your favourite possession is a house. Yay! <laughs> <laughs> so tell me yeah. uh, about why you. Cho- Other people on the show, mate, choose a twig or yeah, or, or yeah. a T-shirt, but you're going big. You pull yeah. out the big guns and go, my house. So tell me
1: about the house. Well, this this was a very hard question to do because I'm not somebody who cherishes possessions. Like, I, I don't have a keepsake. I don't have jewellery or, you know, anything. But um, but the house, the reason I chose the house is because it actually, it has changed me. Right. Like, I, I've lived in lots of houses over the years, but this is the first house where I just go, I really want this house. And we are so overextended on the mortgage. It is unbelievable. Like, every time you read the news about... So some mortgage borrowers might be overextended in the coming months. It's like oh, that's me, <laughs> that's been, and that's been like us as a couple for years. Like we're just going, what have we done? Like this is. Yeah, yeah. But at the same time, the goal is to keep this house. It's got to pull out the back. Right. Our kids. It's it's a sort of apartment complex like, of townhouses. Um. Our kids are friends with everyone else in the complex. Like it's this beautiful family environment where there's a real sense of community. I used to dream of going back to New York for a couple of years or, you know, it, like it's actually changed my priorities. This, this house is something that I serve. Like it possesses me as much as I possess it.
0: <laughs> so, but, but this, you know the English comedian, the fat bloke, Mel Smith?
1: Yes, yes, he, great.
0: He, he, yeah, lovely. He, he gave a, an interview, quite an emotional one, where he said, uh, I only grew up when my father died. And you go, that's so interesting. Where, where you're living your life, you're doing stuff. And then you go, hold on, well, I'm the next cab off the rank. You know, dad is dead. So something fundamentally has shifted in my life. And, and when I'm hearing you talk, it's interesting where you go, and it's not a materialistic thing. I think it's a it's a sort of a maturing growing up thing. You go, I've I, I found things that are valuable and important to me, and it's worth working hard for. But this is serious. So when you're eating pizza, smoking dope, watching The Man Who Knew Too Little, you haven't really got an anchor that you, have, that you are responsible for
1: Mm, and and you've got
0: two kids haven't you yes so you go it's a part of growing up isn't it you go this is real
1: I've got a house (laughs) yeah and in in some ways it feels like it has forced me to grow up yeah like it yeah it's made me reflect on my work like there's always been the opportunity to go we'll sell out out of Sydney and have a sea change and we'd easily be able to survive if we lived up the coast or, or something like that and and you're going, no, but actually this house is is so wonderful. The, the quality – like we pinch ourselves. We've been living there for four years. We still pinch ourselves every summer going, how possibly do we live in such a perfect place? So that
0: is such a lovely note to end on. But before I do, I want to say a couple of things. One is it's been just an honour to have you on, mate. I really appreciate that. But I'm going to ask you one other question that you don't know I'm going to ask you, which is who should I have on
1: next? That's really interesting. Oh, there's a couple of people who I would seriously think about getting. Mm-hmm. Seth Abramson. Right. Have you ever heard of him? No, I don't. He's, I don't even know what to think about him, but he's this very intense um, citizen journalist who lives in, I don't know, Connecticut or something like that, um, who has literally been piecing together. He's an ex-lawyer um piecing together the trump russia stuff okay and i just get the sense that he, like he has the most fascinating story behind him about where he where so, he's so, now so ended we're going
0: to give him a call who was the other person
1: it, well except it's a bit boring to <laughs>
0: Just, no, no, you know, no, nothing's boring him. We're all friends no, here. You no,
1: know, but actually all the way through this interview, I was thinking to myself, you really should get my sister on. Your sister? Okay. Why Why should I interview your sister? Well, she loves talking about herself. <laughs> um, <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and she's a great raconteur, but she, she has a totally different journey to me, even though... We're sort of from the same background.
0: I think we're going to do it, and I think we're going to rename the series <laughs> The Five of the Firth
1: Family. Yeah! yeah Charles, <laughs> Smith,
0: thank you very much. The Five of My Life was presented by me, Nigel Marsh. Producer, Alex Mitchell. Sound production and theme music by Darcy Thompson and Matt Nicklish.